This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of December 1st, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 208 of Defender Radio. This would be a great spot to be playing Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changing, the song I named this episode after. But apparently, Mr. Dylan likes to get paid for his music, so instead we're going to get straight into the subject matter. It gets frustrating for us animal lovers. The apparent lack of change, the ongoing suffering. But the times, they really are a-changing. This week we're talking with two people involved in the process of change. First is Mario Canseco of Insights West, who conducted a poll on Canadians' attitudes about fur and is an expert on consumer behavior. Following Mario is Camille Labchuk, the animal rights attorney well known by our supporters. In her work with animal justice, Camille has played an important role in the development and release of the Animal Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Let's get started. Earlier this year, APFA got to work with Insights West to poll Canadian households and find out what they thought about fur. We released some of this data with our Make Fur History campaign last month, and more with our Christmas shopping advisory last week. Mario Canseco, a VP at Insights West, joined us recently to explain what the numbers mean and what path they're showing us for our work. Let's let's start out. Let's talk a bit about this poll that uh, Insights West conducted on our behalf, uh, looking at attitudes in Canada about fur. Um, the first number that jumped out at me when I was reading these results, and it's what we've said in a lot of our campaigns and press releases, is that 63% of homes did not have any fur or fur trim in their homes. Um, what, now, is that the kind of thing where it's going to be consistent across the board, or is that something that should be taken with a little bit of wariness? Uh, no, I think what it indicates is that things have really changed dramatically as we get older. And I think that is something that we see throughout the entire survey, the idea that uh, most of those garments are old, maybe you kept them, maybe you inherited from somebody, uh, but they, once these uh, uh, garments uh, are, no longer, are no longer used, then you're not buying any new for garments to replace them. So it's almost as if, if you were to look at this 10, 15 years down the road, the number of fur garments in the homes will be smaller and smaller because people aren't necessarily buying more fur in order to replace the old ones that are no longer being used. Well, and that's true in the, uh, also in the poll, we, we had asked... Um when did you acquire the fur? And the majority of responses were in the two categories, uh, six to ten years ago or ten years or more. Yes. You have roughly half of them saying that uh, any garments that are made out of fur in their house uh, were acquired uh, more than six years ago. And very few have actually bought anything over the past two years. Uh, What is interesting there is that it seems to be a little bit higher with the 18 to 34 crowd. Uh, but I guess, you know, one of the issues that we see here is consistently people who give you uh, fur as a gift. And what we've seen over the past few years, research that I've conducted, not only here, but also uh, before I came to, to Insights West, there's this interesting situation uh, which generates, particularly when you look at the gift-giving habits around Christmas and Valentine's Day, where men are more likely to believe that if they give fur to a woman, 
it is one of the things that they want. And women consistently saying, I don't want you to give me her. So what we need to do is really understand how our own uh, partners uh, like and, and, and some of the things that they want to get. Because we, we do seem to be running into this scenario of that old cliche where if you give a woman fur, she'll be happy. Most of them are saying that it is morally unacceptable, so they don't want to get fur either in Valentine's Day or uh, during the holidays. Well, and that's something uh, interesting as well. We actually had spoken with uh, Joshua Catcher, a fashion designer and fashion expert out of New York, who, who said the exact same thing, <laughs> that men still have this... This, this idea that buying fur is a good thing. Um, but we did see that 57% of women in Canada do not think wearing fur is morally acceptable. Now, when I posted this on our social media channels, we had a few people saying, well, what's wrong with the other 43%? <laughs> but yeah, right. It's, it's kind of a, a typical reaction. But, uh, what I found interesting after, after my years in news is looking at 57%. When you've got kind of that yes, no, maybe, so three choices, yes. um, I cannot think of a single election where more than half of the people made the same decision. I can't, like, the the rarity of that happening in politics is astounding. So is that, like, is that a number we should be depressed by or is it a number we should look at with hope? Well, I think what it does show is that there's a, a, a changing attitude and, you know, when 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 I look back at the surveys that were conducted 10, 20, 30 years ago on issues that are now no longer contentious, such, such as same-sex marriage, such as same-sex civil unions, you do see a little bit of a change from the uh, respondents who are in their 50s and are essentially saying that they don't want to see people get married, they don't want to see civil unions. and and. As the time goes by, uh, those younger uh, residents start to become middle-aged and the numbers continue to shift. So I think what we'll see here is a, is a scenario where the younger population starts to become middle-aged. They start to be making decisions about their own households, how they are going to be spending their money. And they already hold this idea that they don't really like her especially women who find it morally unacceptable. So if anything, I think if we look back on, on, on this survey five, ten years from now, the numbers, if we were to do it again, would be actually lower because what it shows is that there's this sociological change uh, that has been uh, brewing for, for years now. There's no longer this idea that fur is the number one gift for women. In fact, they don't want it. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is that, consumer behavior and that's something that we we've been talking a lot about in our offices over the last couple of years is rather than trying to petition a company and i'll use the example of canada goose right. who, who's very trendy and popular still um they have no reason to change their business model despite the fact that 57 percent of women are against fur despite the fact that 63% of their of homes in Canada do not have any fur because they're still making money. Um, so our attitude has been really shifting towards consumer awareness. Yes. Um, now, based on the numbers that you saw during this polling, um, is would you say consumer awareness is really where we and other advocates need to be hitting? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, we may be in a situation where there are certain consumers who are not aware of how those garments are made and all of the uh, processes that, that entail finding a way for them to be able to buy them. And, you know, if we look back at the garment industry over the past 20 years, uh, there's been a, a really big change, uh, which hasn't really been based on, on economics. It, ha it has been based more on the idea of the origin of those garments. Uh, we, what we, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it really would have been rare 
to be discussing sweatshops in uh, Bangladesh or in Vietnam. And now it really becomes part of the actual com conversation when you're figuring out what you're going to buy. So having that, uh, that choice uh, really makes people more uneasy about specific things that they could be buying or actually pursuing. And it's no different for this because what you see there is a scenario where there's a change because of the origin of those garments. You know, people tend to be more aware now about how those uh, garments are made, the actual uh, processes that the animals go through. And this is what is making things change. It's, it's no longer about the, the cuteness factor because now you are deeply aware of the situation that is behind each and one of them. It's in every one of those garments. Well, and I, I, I'd also find uh, sort of an addendum to that is a poll Insights West conducted, and I believe it was last year. You can correct me on that. Mm -hmm. And it was attitudes about uh, animals and animal use in society. Yes. And as I recall, it was a very high percentage of people who said it is morally unacceptable to use an animal for its fur. Yeah. But the number is not as high in this poll where it was about wearing fur. So do you think that's a bit of a disconnect maybe still between people who they don't think it's right to kill an animal and use its fur, mm -hmm. but they're not recognizing that as the process which leads to the fur on their jackets? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that are different there. The one we did on, on, on the whole issue of animals was conducted only in, in BC. And if we look at the national numbers from the one we just conducted for you, uh, BC and Quebec tend to be at the forefront of looking at the issue from the from an animal rights standpoint. So uh, I, I would argue that the numbers were were probably closer in BC to what we saw in the other survey that, that we conducted. Uh, but you know, one of the problems there is also uh, there's uh, there's a different relationship with animals from the one that we used to have 40, 50 years ago. And it seems to be really also an urban-rural divide. Uh, you know, people who live in the cities tend to be less in tune with what animals actually represent. They may not have ever visited a farm of any sort, and they just think that meat is something that you buy in a styrofoam package at your supermarket. So, you know, part of it is that cultural aspect. Uh, there's the haunting element, which, you know, is, is fairly strange in the sense that uh, you know, BC is an area that really prides itself on the ability to allow people to hunt, uh, but most people who live here do not like to see it happen. Well, and that's uh, again goes back to my comment about politics. Um, yeah, <laughs> getting people to agree on something is very, very difficult. Um, so, what what would you say then? To I mean, you're you're a bit of a consumer affairs expert. You're you're a pollster expert. You've got this wide breadth of knowledge. What would your message be to people who are out there? Um, who see these numbers and maybe they're not high enough for them or yeah. they want to know what they can be doing to raise those numbers. What would your professional advice be to the masses on that front? Well, one of the things that we have now, which we never had 20, 30 years ago, is the ability to really pinpoint what a company does, uh, how it behaves with the public, how it behaves with its stakeholders. And because of the way we are connected now, technology allows you to find out everything you need to know about something. And also, there are many ways to debunk some of those questions because everybody can post information. So if you're going to be buying something, at least make sure that it's something that you agree with. At least make sure that the company is actually supporting causes that you care about. Um, that is the new uh, way to do things when it comes to retail. It's no longer about having the opportunity to go to a store. We, we, we are buying more and more online. And even though we are doing a lot of research about where to get things cheaply or, or how to ship them more easily, 
uh, we do not seem to be doing a very good job actually doing research on the companies themselves. It's easier now than it was before, but it's, it's a step that many of us seem, seem to be forgetting about. To learn more about Insights West and view past data from their work, visit InsightsWest.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. The Christmas tree for the animals has long been a beacon of hope in times of darkness. By sending in your donation today, your very own light will be lit as a reminder of all the lives that were lost this year. And it will serve as a beacon of hope as we fight to protect fur-bearing animals for another year. Please donate today at www.furbearerdefenders.com. That's www.furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. We're back to talk more about how the times are changing for animals in Canada. And who else could we find to speak to this than superstar attorney Camille Labchuk. In her work with animal justice, Camille has helped to develop and launch the Animal Charter of Rights and Freedom. To discuss what this charter is, what it could mean, and how we can all help make it a reality, Camille joined Defender Radio. So tell me about the charter campaign that was launched by Animal Justice last week. Animal Justice is uh, proposing something really exciting to me. It's really a legal revolution in the way we think about animals, and that's a charter of rights and freedoms for animals. 30 years ago, Canada did something really great for the humans in this country when we introduced the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and it's uh, really changed the way the law treats human beings. And their rights are, are generally much better protected now than they used to be. Uh, but what the law has left behind completely is animals. Uh, animals in this country have almost no legal protection. They have very few legal rights. And what we're saying is they need legal rights, and they need a way to go to court to enforce those rights. And uh, this, this really is a new, innovative way of thinking, and uh, we're hoping that we can introduce it into the, the public consciousness. Uh, now, there, there's, in the headline... Uh, on the CBC coverage, which I which I'd say is probably the most extensive so far, uh, it says that um, it could be uh, impractical 
in terms of its application. Um, so how do you address that? I mean, people are going to say, well, they're just animals or, you know, why do animals require special rights? How do, how do you get over that hurdle uh, of people saying it's impractical or there's no need for it or anything like that? Well, the response from the public so far has actually been overwhelming in the other direction. We're getting calls, we're getting email messages, uh, comments on social media and on news stories. And they're overwhelmingly supportive of the idea that we do need to give animals rights to ensure that they can live lives free from suffering and pain and lives where they can express natural behaviors and, and find the joy in life that we all seek. Uh, so I would say that really this uh, charter attaches up to where society already is. People in Canada are compassionate and we know that uh, animals suffer and experience pain and they experience joy and pleasure just like human beings do. Uh, and I really think that people are telling us that they're ready for this. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Um, is this an attempt to make Canada completely vegan or completely, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a realistically abolitionist vegan? <laughs> well, if you look at the charter, uh, it, it's, it doesn't go that far. What the charter says is that animals that we use, so it assumes that uh, some animals will be under human care, but it says that animals who are under human care do have certain inalienable rights. These rights uh, that, that protect them from suffering caused by us, uh, that protect them from pain, that protect them from psychological fear and emotional suffering, which is an area that science now tells us. Uh, that, that's important to animals. Like I said, they suffer and they experience joy emotionally and psychologically just like we do. And confining animals in certain situations, uh, the two that come to mind are, are factory farms, both in the food context and the fur farm context. Animals are crammed into tiny cages. Battery cage tens, for example, have about the space of an iPad in which to live their entire lives. They can never even stretch out their wings. Think of how physically uncomfortable that must be, but also how psychologically uh, depressing it might be, or it must be. Uh, and we know it to be the case. Uh, gestation crates for sows who are, who are breeding. Uh, sows, female pigs kept in these crates can never turn around their entire lives. They're confined uh, to uh, one tiny area. And we know that they're quite literally driven crazy uh, by this. So we've really come around to a point in society, I think, where we're ready for something uh, that does say animals need legal rights under the law and they need a way to get to court to enforce them. Um, now, I, I would have to then also, playing devil's advocate, say, aren't there already protections in place in the legal system for animals? Animals have some protections under the law. So, for example, in most provinces, uh, or all of them really, it's an offense to uh, cause an animal to be in distress. So you could say that some animals have the right not to be in distress. Uh, it's often an offense not to uh, provide them with food and water. There's an obligation to do so. So you could say that's an offense as well, and uh, that they do have that legal right. But some of the problems with existing animal protection laws are that there are so many broad-scale exemptions to them. So most of the animals that we use in society, for example, are in the factory farming context. And there are massive exemptions to these prohibitions on causing distress for animals used by industry, such as, such as factory firms. Uh, but then the, the other side of the equation is that even when animals do have some legal rights, 
they don't have a mechanism right now to get to court to enforce those rights. There's no way that a human or a group of people, uh, an NGO or an animal protection group, can go to court on behalf of an animal and enforce their rights. And let me give you an example of that that really brought this issue into stark relief a couple of years ago. In the Edmonton Zoo, a lone elephant named Lucy uh, lives by herself in a comparatively tiny enclosure. Uh, she's the northernmost elephant in the world, I believe, but she lives in Edmonton. And keep in mind that elephants are not sued for, for snow. That's not their natural habitat. And just like many of us, you can imagine that she doesn't enjoy it much. Uh, but more seriously, uh, Lucy has serious foot problems. Ele elephants in the wild roam all over every day, and they get exercise that prevents them from developing foot problems. When they're kept in human captivity in zoos, uh, they develop foot problems, and Lucy has a whole host of other health problems as well. So for years, people have been demanding that Lucy be moved from the Edmonton Zoo, and they're, they're saying that the conditions that she's kept in violate provincial animal welfare law and do violate those those rights that she does have. Eventually, this case made its way to court and uh, groups like Buchek and People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals and some local Edmonton activists went to court on Lucy's behalf and tried to say, hey, listen, the city of Edmonton is violating this elephant's rights by keeping her in these conditions. And the court dismissed the case on a technicality. The court said, no, sorry, you folks don't have standing to come here and uh, make this complaint on Lucy's behalf. So what we see there is a gigantic loophole. Uh, there's, there's a saying within the law that a right is uh, meaningless if there's no way to enforce it. And that's really what we saw in the case of Lucy. And for me, that example illustrates really perfectly why we need not only rights for animals, but a way for them to get to court or have somebody like animal rights lawyers go to court on their behalf and seek a remedy for a violation of their rights. So what happens next? Um, I mean, it, it seems that you've built a very logical, compassionate case for having this kind of policy put in place. Um, and animal justice is collecting signatures. Um, but, but what what happens next and what do you expect to happen next? Do you expect this to be uh, ratified into law, or do you expect it to simply be a conversation starter? I, I think the first uh, part is having a conversation, and the second part is uh, actually introducing this as a bill uh, in, in some capacity and, and getting legal rights for animals and an enforcement mechanism enshrined into the law. And like I said, I think society is already here. We are a compassionate society. We understand that animals feel pain and they suffer just like we do. So I think what we need to do next is, is make the case to politicians and tell them why Canadians are demanding better for animals and tell them that we, we need to bring legal rights in for Canada. You know, I can tell you over the years, there have been various attempts to fix the criminal code cruelty provisions, which haven't been meaningfully updated since the 1890s. So that's over 100 years ago. And every time... Uh, amendments are proposed, you know, they've, they've always failed so far, which is, which is tragic, but another story. Every time they've been proposed, uh, politicians have been uh, just deluged with emails and phone calls. And uh, federal MPs have told me and, and senators have told me that uh, they've never received so much voter contact on anything in their lives, but animal issues. So I know that people really do care about how we treat animals as a society. And they really do care about doing better for them and, and making the law catch up to society's expectations. All right. And people who want to get involved, people who see this as an important issue, who want to, to, to help make this happen, what can they be doing? 
People can visit animaljustice.ca slash charter. They can sign the charter. And I really encourage everyone to share it with your friends, share it on social media. Uh, we would like to get as many signatures as possible so that when we're ready to take it to lawmakers, we can say, look at all of these thousands of Canadians who are saying it's time to be better for animals in Canada. To learn more about the Animal Charter of Rights and Freedom and add your name to the many, visit animaljustice.ca. Well, that's the show for this week. I'd like to thank both our guests, as well as Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of Defender Radio. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>